revolutionary. You're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio right here at Grace Capital. Stay tuned. I got a right to self determination. I got a right to my ancestral values. And I got a right to Early this morning. Early this morning. Woke up from my sleep. Woke up from my sleep. I could feel the freedom. I could feel the freedom. All up in my bones. All up in my bones. Standing on the shoulders. Standing on the shoulders. Of my ancestors. Of my ancestors. Those who came before us. Those who came before us. They who make us strong. They who make us strong. The movement for black lives is more than just a chauvin verdict. Throughout the summer, calls for justice extended far beyond police convictions. This week on Race Capital, we revisit archived audio from the streets and ground ourselves in the fight for justice for Black lives. Yep. Hey, hey. Might we have to raise our voices? Yeah. Hell yeah. 
and revolution. When it comes to the protection of black queer lives, it can be concluded that the Richmond Police Department and so-called Mayor LaBar Stoney are uninterested in upholding their commitment to our lives. So consequently, they both gotta go. The time for reconciliation is long gone. We recognize the redundancy in reforming a system informed by centuries of white supremacy and sustained by the criminalization of black trans people in the spaces that they consume. Our message has been clear from the start. And we gotta say that because our elected officials try to act like we haven't been out here saying what we wanted for the past 30 days. Abolitionist. I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. I am the system's worst nightmare. I am the system's worst nightmare. You are exactly where you need to be today, right now. 
I'm going to say that one more time just so you can really get grounded. Feel your feet on the ground, y'all. If you're sitting, feel that too. You are exactly where you need to be right now. And that is a gift. That is a beautiful thing. I want to ground us really quickly in the historical month that we are in right now. This is August. This is Black August. Black August is a time where we study. We don't celebrate Black August. We commemorate it. We lean into Black August. That means leaning into the legacy of freedom fighters who have become political prisoners so we can be here today. We must pay homage to those folks. We must remember that we are part of a legacy. Nothing out here is new. Nothing ain't new under the sun. And we are truly standing on the shoulders of people who have been doing this work way before we were even born. So we must pay homage to people who have given up their lives, who have given up their freedom, so we can continue to fight. There are people that got arrested last night, the night before, days before, weeks before, and we are out here for them. Defund the police! Defund the police and fund black futures. This is the march to fund black futures. Know what you're marching for. We want the police defunded. We want our futures funded. We don't want to live in a police state. Do you want to live in a police state? Do you want to live in a police state? Now we have to explain to our people, we have to make a new slogan, one people, one voice. And we have to move as a people in our neighborhood to control. We have to stop reacting and we have to become aggressive. We can no longer stand up and beg anybody for a victory or concession. Because I'm here to tell you that if you beg a man for a victory, he gives it to you. It's his victory, not yours. At a time where the nation and world tuned in to the George Floyd murder trial, where killer cop Derek Chauvin and Minnesota policing were cast into the spotlight, where 13-year-old Adam Toledo was killed just 10 miles down the road, where here in Virginia, we grieve the losses of so many Black people killed at the hands of the state just this year, including Xavier Hill, Donovan Lynch, Ellis Buck Fry, and Donald Hairston, in a city where Richmond police officers killed Marcus David Peters, and at a time where the Richmond City Council is considering giving the racist police almost $10 million more dollars in funding on top of salary raises when the community is demanding that the police be defunded and abolished. What does justice look like? Stay tuned for our conversation a little later in the episode, where we explore this and speak to community activist Alan Charles Chipman about the Richmond budget and hear his thoughts on the implication of the George Floyd verdict for Richmond. But first, we dive into the latest local, national, and international headlines with our race capital reframe. Stay tuned. Black bodies in 
You are listening to Race Capital on the week of Wednesday, April 21st, 2021, with me, Kalia Harris. And me, Naomi Isaac. Let's get started by jumping into the latest headlines with our Race Capital reframe. In local news, this week in our eviction watch, there are 112 unlawful detainers on the books for Richmond courts, with tomorrow being the highest day with 55 unlawful detainers in one day. Reminder to our audience, unlawful detainers are the first step a landlord takes to evict a tenant. And even as there are federal and state eviction moratoriums in place to prevent physical evictions from happening, these legal proceedings have not stopped during the pandemic. As our city will see hundreds of millions of dollars in federal stimulus funding, community members should be aware of all of the possibilities for this funding, including direct cash payments to residents so that they can afford to live during and beyond this pandemic. And speaking of money, the Richmond City Council is proposing amendments to the mayor's proposed $770 million budget. VPM reports that three council members, Newville, Robertson, and Trammell, are proposing amendments to the budget that include increases to police and firefighters that would cost anywhere from $1.4 million to $4 million. This increase is on top of two raises that are already written into the budget. Other proposals from Jones, Lynch, and Newbill would fund salary increases for public defenders and increase the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. The City <laughs> Council will meet again today to begin discussing these amendments. I mean, given that the Derek Chauvin trial, even before the verdict, there were mass calls from the people to defund the police, you know, throughout the summer and for the past couple of years to see that in the in the eve in the wake of a verdict for the police state that the Richmond City Council has been seeking to inject, again, just millions of dollars into the police is pretty telling of where they stand when it comes to violence against Black folks and when it comes to Black liberation. And we will hear a little bit later today from Alan Charles as he breaks down this budget a little bit more. But what is apparent from these amendments is just how willing our city council members are to cut pieces of our budget, like housing, like tax relief for our elders, to increase the police budget even more, despite the demands of the community to defund the police. It's just enraging. And so I really do wonder, you know, after this verdict has come down, uh, you know, and the energy is in the air, how our city council is going to respond today when they meet to talk about this. But we need to keep an eye on these budget conversations. Moving into Northern Virginia, the Washington Post is reporting that Fairfax County prosecutors are moving to throw out more than 400 criminal convictions based on the testimony or work of a former officer who is accused of stealing drugs from the police property room, planting drugs on innocent people, and stopping motorists without legal basis, according to court findings. In last Friday's hearing, a Fairfax judge said, quote, He was inclined to vacate felony drug and gun convictions against former D.C. firefighter and order him released from prison next week after serving nearly two years because of the actions of former officer Jonathan A. Freitag, end quote. Fairfax police began investigating Freitag in July 2019 following a tip that led to him being taken off of patrol. Freitag resigned in June 2020 and was hired by a department in Florida in August 2020. 
Fairfax Human Resources told the Florida Police Department that the former officer had never been, quote, subject to disciplinary action, end quote, end quote, there are no disciplinary records in his file, end quote. Like, what? I mean, it's unsurprising. Again, at this point, most of the news coming out regarding police officers, whether it be their collusion with white supremacists, whether it be their corruption, is overwhelmingly unsurprising to people who have been out in the street, you know, speaking truth to power about the violences of the police for a whole year. So, I mean, at this point, is it surprising to us? No. The question just remains what the state and what the local government in Fairfax will do. And again, we can guess what what the outcome will be. Yeah, I know that the Commonwealth's attorney up there, Steve Descano, is leading this charge. So I'm eager to see how it all turns out. But it's just to me, like to see the number 400 convictions, it reminds us of how many charges the police are throwing out here um, on our people. And that's just the beginning of this system. And then we have to investigate also what happens when judges are convicting them. And so, you know, taking one police officer off of the streets, you know, wherever it is, they have impacted the lives of hundreds of people in that community. So that's really something to look into. As well as just remembering that this is one officer in one county in one state. So it's just like, you know, how many other officers have been doing this? And and that's kind of where my inquisition as to what will be done beyond this one officer, but with the department in which he belonged to and the people that trained him, you know, like there's there's so many other guilty parties involved. Yes. And we know the Fairfax County police are known for being militarized, their anti-drug operations. Too many of us have been personally impacted by the police up there. So I hope that there is, you know, some change which involves defunding them. Well, to many people in Virginia, the now viral violent encounter between the Windsor police and Lieutenant Karen Nazario caught on video was no surprise. Greg Harkey of the Virginian Pilot talked to Black folks who have experienced decades of racist policing on 460 between Petersburg and Suffolk. Quote, eight Black former VSU students and faculty gave the Virginian Pilot accounts of being targeted while driving between Suffolk and Petersburg. They say it's been common knowledge for decades at VSU. If you travel through the area, you'll be stopped on the pretext of speeding or a minor infraction, then get harassed by police. End quote. In terms of numbers, in Virginia, about 20% of the state's 8.5 million residents are Black. But in Wakefield, Waverly, and Windsor, the percentage of cases involving Black people that are heard in general district court, where speeding tickets and minor traffic citations are heard, is far higher. In 2018, 2019, and 2020, they accounted for at least 40% of the district court cases where those towns were listed as the location. We know that traffic stops can be dangerous and sometimes fatal for Black people and Black Virginians specifically. Police must be taken out of these traffic stops immediately. And this is why uh, the murder of 18-year-old Xavier Hill really resonates deeply with me because attending school at BSU and being a student in the area, it's a common occurrence before class for folks to text saying that they've been stopped by the police, for folks to speak of violent encounters that they've had with police for speeding, where they've had to get out of the car, stand against the car and like be held with weapon. You know, these are common occurrences. It's not just the headlines. And so, yeah, it, it's just crazy how close to home these situations hit. Yeah. It's actually very frightening. I mean, how common it is. I 
<laughs> just I don't think that it really registers to folks how much of a, a attack on the black youth in those rural areas, how constant it is. Lastly, in local news, The Guardian reports that a data breach of a Christian crowdfunding site revealed information about police and law enforcement officials across the country donating to killer cops and far-right white supremacists such as Kyle Rittenhouse. In fact, Sergeant William Kelly, who allegedly made a donation of $25 on September 3rd last year on the website and currently serves as the Executive Officer of Internal Affairs in the Norfolk Police Department, left a comment that read, quote, God bless. Thank you for your courage. Keep your head up. You've done nothing wrong. Every rank and file police officer supports you. Don't be discouraged by the actions of the political class of law enforcement leadership, end quote. So there you have it. There you have it. It's not just the local police we need to defund. It's all of them. I mean, police officers across the Commonwealth have repeatedly showed themselves throughout this period, especially post the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, it's come out that numerous police officers across Virginia have been involved or engaged with white supremacist actions and and white nationalists themselves. This is no surprise to those of us who have seen and experienced state violence firsthand, Black and brown people in the city and throughout the state who who know the reality of that violence. And so I just, yeah, I urge people to to keep their eyes open. Virginia is in the headlines because we are the birthplace of the Confederacy. And um, we're also a birthplace of resistance here as well. All right. Well, moving into national news, we'll kick it off with our COVID watch. So it's been a few weeks, but this week the world has surpassed 3 million COVID deaths. In the U.S., we've topped 31 million total cases with 564,813 deaths. Almost half of the adults in the country have received at least one dose of a vaccine. In Virginia, there have been just under 650,000 confirmed COVID cases and 10,625 deaths. This week, vaccine eligibility opened up for all Virginians 16 and up. While I'm grateful for the vaccination effort, I find it really strange that we're moving into, I mean, I feel like I say this every week, but I just find it really strange that we're moving into a more vaccine-oriented approach rather than, you know, calls for a lockdown amidst news from the CDC and reports that, you know, COVID is surging, uh, the numbers continue to get worse, especially in the global south and in these countries where we see vaccine apartheid taking place. We see variants spreading. It's just... <laughs> I don't know. I I feel like I'm living in dissonance where I I see the numbers going up and I see the only response from the state is vaccination, whereas like people are still facing health disparities. They're still facing wealth disparities in the ways that they're able to manage all the impacts of the the pandemic. So I just urge people to not let the vaccine efforts kind of overshadow our our broader need to, to still social distance, to still take care of our neighbors who are suffering and losing their lives to this uh, illness because we know that the vaccines are not reaching communities equally. Yes to all of that. It is still a pandemic out here or a panacotta or whatever you want to call it. Um, (laughs) It is still real. So just 
folks take care, take care as you can. Moving into the South, out of Memphis, Tennessee, the predominantly Black neighborhood of Boxtown is fighting the construction of a proposed 49-mile crude oil pipeline that will connect a refinery in Memphis to an existing pipeline in Marshall County, Mississippi. The pipeline threatens to cut through Boxtown, once one of the few places where Black Americans could buy their own land. When slaves were freed, they migrated to Boxtown. And the reason why they call it Boxtown is because many of the homes were made out of boxes from the trains, Linda Hayes told ABC News. The community is fighting back against the pipeline, calling it environmental racism and raising awareness of the reality that the pipeline poses a risk to drinking water and can impact property values in the neighborhood. The underground pipeline is a joint venture by Plains All-American and Valero Energy Corporation. Well, we have quite a few episodes on environmental injustice. And I think, you know, Nomi, you have talked with us at length about the legacy of Black resistance to these type of projects. And so it's just another example of how when we talk about things like climate change and the environmental crisis, like that is happening here in the South. Right. And it accentuates the fact that, you know, when when we talk about the movement for Black life and Black liberation, that the youth especially are, are saying that this is not just a, an issue of policing, but it is also an issue of all of the conjoining factors that seek to kill us. And, and one of those things is the destruction of the earth. And Black communities and Indigenous communities have been bringing that issue of, of climate justice environmental justice to the forefront throughout this uh, entire year of uprising. So continue to, you know, check in on those rural Black folks and Indigenous people uh, who, who are rising up against the fossil fuel industry. Yes. Well, in other news, BuzzFeed News is reporting that more than 7,000 individuals and 2,000 public agencies nationwide have been using Clearview AI which is a controversial facial recognition tool that allows law enforcement, including state and local police, ICE, state's attorney generals, the U.S. military, and public schools to search through millions of photos. Clearview brags on its, quote, world's best facial recognition technology, end quote, which uses DMV photos and scrapes billions of photos posted on social media and the internet without permission or consent. These photos are then used by law enforcement in their investigations. And we know that AI technology is racist and continues to misidentify Black folks. Yeah, AI is racist and the institutions that are using it are very concerning. The police, ICE, the military. And schools. Yeah, it's like we don't want traditional policing to be replaced with surveillance-oriented measures. That's that's not what the call is from the community. No, and honestly, I would like more information about which public agencies, you know, near us are using this technology. It really harkens me back to when we were looking into the RPD and VCUPD MOU and their use of predictive policing technology, because this is just right up that alley. Just minutes before the guilty verdict in Minneapolis was read in the Derek Chauvin trial, a 15-year-old Black girl named Makia Bryant was shot and killed by Columbus police in Ohio. We send our condolences to Makia's family, as well as the Black families and communities across Virginia who are grieving the loss of a loved one at the hands of the racist police. This is the grandest indictment of the system, if there ever was one. It just shows 
how police violence is not going to stop because of this trial and how it's ongoing. State violence has not stopped. Moving into international news, a 600-page report commissioned by the Rwandan government concluded that, quote, the French government bears significant responsibility for enabling a foreseeable genocide, end quote in regards to France's role before and during the Rwandan genocide in which an estimated 800,000 people were slaughtered in 1994, Africa News reports. The report states that in years leading up to the genocide, former French President Francois Mitterrand and his administration had knowledge of preparations for the massacres, yet kept supporting the government despite the, quote, warning signs, unquote. This report comes two months after the French report, commissioned by French President Macron, concluded that French authorities had been, quote, blind to the preparations for genocide and then reacted too slowly to appreciate the extent of the killings and to respond to them, end quote. The Rwandan report stated plainly that the French authorities, quote, pursued France's own interests, in particular the reinforcement and expansion of France's power and influence in Africa, end quote. Hmm. This is a reminder that all European colonial powers, such as the French, the British, and including the USA, are under scrutiny during this time. Yes, and when we say that we want to dismantle all of it, it also includes those colonial powers as well that have benefited greatly from colonialism. Well, yeah, we can't talk about the violence of Black Americans or Black people without talking about the violence and the destabilization of Africa by colonial powers such as the French, who continue to this day to benefit off of reaping and stealing from Africa. So come on, put them on trial. In South Africa this week, a wildfire that has been ablaze since Sunday has spread to the University of Cape Town Library, where countless historic documents and records have been destroyed. The fire forced students and faculty to evacuate the 200-year-old campus. According to officials, the fire was likely started by an individual and traveled due to winds and high temperatures, Democracy Now! reports. That's just, it's so sad. Anytime, like, our history is lost, and especially to something like this, like a a fire that, in this case, maybe it could have been prevented, um, but in many cases with, you know, nature just the way that the conditions are, once it starts, it's going to spread. And so it's unfortunate that it has destroyed so much of our history in the the process. Yeah, just knowing that so much of Africa's history and documentation has been suppressed or intentionally destroyed. Like you said, there's some skepticism just involved with how the fire even started. But then there's also just that overwhelming sadness of like losing more and more and more of like these written documents that we already have so little of that describe the black experience and the African experience from an African context. Well, that is all for our reframe this week. Stay tuned as we hear from community activist, Alan Charles Shipman about the budget by enrichment and his reflections on the implications of the George Floyd verdict and what's next for Richmond. You are listening to race capital on WRIR LP 97.3 FM Richmond independent radio. Stay tuned.
my friends and family race capital thank you for feeding our radical imaginations so in response to the budget um who proposed the budget uh the mayor proposes the budget uh he presents it to city council uh city council at that point can accept the budget as is uh Never really happens. We're going to keep it real with you. (laughs) But after the budget is offered, city council then proposes amendments and they are discussed in budget sessions. Uh, Once uh, they kind of work through the consensus of, you know, different members have different budget amendments uh, and whether negotiation, they get to kind of get to consensus. Then they have to vote to approve the budget. They can make cuts across the board. They can make cuts to specific line items, specific departments, uh, and then do an increase or move that money around. So there are ways that that uh, that budget system kind of maneuvers. And once that's done, they vote to approve it. Now, the golden question, what implications does the Chauvin case have on the Richmond City budget? And how does this, you know, national news play into Richmond specifically? Well, I think, you know, the problem is that national news plays more into Richmond specifically than things that are specific to Richmond, <laughs> like why we're out uh, in the streets during the summer and continually. My concern, and I kind of saw this uh, trend in the wake of the insurrection, that police are trying to rebrand off of the end effects of white supremacy, right? So because police officers were, quote unquote, defending our democracy by the people that the caste you know, system uh, protects through their institution, decided to come up to the White House and display that privilege. Uh, they are now kind of rebranding and saying, look, we're the fundamental protectors of democracy while they violate our uh, democratic and constitutional rights, such as civil asset forfeiture and other things, uh, and, and, and taking the lives of people and extra, practicing extrajudicial killings uh, and saying that it's right because I have a use of force document that says officer uh, safety first and always. So what is the implication on the Chauvin case for the Richmond City budget? Uh, I think the implications are that uh, now that the good police have, quote unquote, good police have come out and and uh, talked about and testified against Chauvin that now we're done. You know, just like uh, Barack Obama was falsely used as the evidence of the end of uh, uh, or usher us into the post-racial America. Now this Chauvin case and the three people that testified somehow are. Uh, ushering us into post-racist policing somehow. Um, and so I think uh, the the implications of the Chauvin case is to try and say, you know, well, they're good apples. And the reason why Chauvin acted the way that he did uh, is because of a lack of training, which you actually can't say, you know, part of the evidence that uh, the prosecuting attorney showed was the certificates of training that Derek Chauvin received, Right. All his training said this wasn't the way to act, and yet he still acted that way. The people who watched him kill George Floyd, uh, the other police officers knew this was out of the training. But what did they do? They watched the training they received be violated. And while there might be, in this specific case, uh, consequences for that, there's no consequences for just watching, right? So which is why people talk about these good apples and all these other types of things. But there's a case that I've been watching for quite some time because uh, I remember when I was testifying for the 
uh, duty to intervene uh, bills during the special session. And I lifted up the case of uh, Carol Horn, a black police officer in Buffalo, New York, who was fired in 2008 for intervening when a white colleague was uh, employing a a chokehold. And she was fired, uh, wasn't given back pay and pension. Uh, And so this was uh, what uh, the system did to the quote unquote uh, good apples. Uh, and so you see that uh, this system of policing has higher consequences for people that uh, act and intervene uh, than people who just stand by and watch. So this is uh, the nature of this system uh, that cannot even be changed from the inside. But let the world see the system for what it is and the same uh, good apples that are thrown out and fired and demoted and all these other type of things suddenly become the central case and example to stand in front and have their good character cover the flaws. And and that just like, you know, when a shirt stinks and it stinks really bad and nobody really wants to wash it. And so they just spray Febreze over it, right? So we have the good apple. We have the good apple scent of Febreze being sprayed over the rotting institution of policing right now. And we are being told that it doesn't stink at the root, but that there's simply something wrong with our nose. So in the same week that we have the Proud Boys and white militias going publicly saying, yes. I'm a white militia that's on the watch list for the FBI under Trump's FBI that Christopher Rape picked. Uh, and the police are training us. Right. What do you do with that? You, you get uh, the leak from the quote unquote Christian uh, GoFundMe network that's uh, raising money for Kyle Rittenhouse, who shot people and was able to, to walk off unlike Dante Wright, unlike Adam Toledo, you have the person in Norfolk that's supposed to be over training officers that we're supposed to be spending all our money on as the solution, sending money to Kyle Rittenhouse saying that you did nothing wrong uh, and the the force backs you, right? All these things uh, coming out and we're supposed to be distracted by the good apple Febreze of three officers that um, decided to testify against uh, Derek Chauvin and um, police officers being uh, beat up by uh, the same uh, terrorists that their same institution is training. Okay. Uh, And so this is what I talk about the good apple Febreze. And so I think in the, in, in, uh, in, in the work of, uh, activists and uh people such as yourselves and you know we were out there really revealing the stench of policing especially here in richmond uh and now they're trying to hit you with the good apple for breeze and give some examples of community policing over here um and saying now well you look we say some good apple for breeze let's cut money from seniors 
Let's cut money from RVA League for Safer Streets. Let's cut money from all these other types of community-led efforts. And let's give it to the institution of policing because we got a guilty. We got three little sprays of good apple Febreze. Uh, my faith says more so that bad company corrupts good morals. And so even if there are good apples, you know, I don't really think there are good apples. I think there are oranges attached to an apple tree trying to figure out why <laughs> the root of policing is different than their root. But that's a whole nother uh, situation. So I think it's about rebranding police off of the blood of George Floyd and saying what they need is training. Uh, I, I I recently served as legislative uh, aide to uh, Delegate Joshua Cole. And I remember when the sheriffs were there asking for their raises, they were saying, well, we need more training. And, and they were just grabbing at all these things that it didn't even apply, right? One person said, well, we, look at how police killed Ahmaud Arbery. And it's like Ahmaud Arbery wasn't killed by police, sheriff. Also, and then he reached, talked about other cases and so while i'm while he's up there testifying i'm up here searching at them and all of the people he named had already received training right so i think there's this whole you know police pay and uh the morale is down and we gotta look after our good apples quote unquote um without um and using that as a scapegoat and a distraction uh from the violence from the disproportionate um racism and stops and other things that that the data has shown that happens in the Richmond Police Department and that, you know, violence doesn't always have to end in our death for it to be a violation. And so you have uh, Ellen Robertson cutting uh, the 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 programming funds, uh, four million dollars that goes towards um, tax relief for disabled and our seniors. Um and then you see four million two hundred fifty thousand going towards police, right? Um, uh, you see Reva Trammell doing the same thing. She wants three point five million. Um, uh, so you see uh, this this trend and 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 the the energy that we had over the summer, uh, kind of being co opted by. Look at our police. Look what they did at the insurrection. Look what they look how they testified for this and using that uh, as a blanket to ignore uh, the violence that has been happening uh, here. And also just the blatant waste of money, as we saw the, you know, pretty much a thin blue line parade going as 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 protesters were protesting the death of Dante Wright and Adam Toledo and, and to see that waste of money. And so we it doesn't look like they need a raise, but when we see people not having enough hotels or places to, 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 you know, permanently help transition our, our friends who are experiencing homelessness, uh, where a need is clearly displayed, it's kind of being overlooked and, 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 uh, things are being cut. So, you know, the budget is a moral document as Coretta Scott King says, we have a Congress or, or lawmakers that subsidize oil companies and houses for suburbia. But when it comes to, uh, dealing with the poor and the most vulnerable, they suddenly become concerned with balancing the budget. And so um, that's kind of what we're seeing in this kind of national theme of, of cherry picking uh, these cases and pretending as if that is all that exists within policing and looking at 
what they would claim to be fruit from a system and ignoring the roots in order to uh, continue to fund the initial um, and, a, and a large part of the system that actually upholds and maintains caste. So no, we don't want the good apple for breeze. We have thoroughly seen um, how, how, how rotten this institution is when you see it at its core, when you see it in its true light, as we did over uh, the summer, as we see whenever true freedom is asked for, we see police uh, and militarized police show up to beat people back uh, into their quote-unquote place in society. And we say it's not a shirt that uh, can endure the thorough washing that it needs, and we want a different garment. And the good apple for breeze isn't going to distract us from what we've seen and the scent of injustice that is thoroughly ingrained in the very fabric of the shirt called policing. Uh, we do not consider uh, policing the garment that we wish to wear into this new era of humanity that we are entering. Policing is a garment that is stained in our blood, you know, as Fannie Lou Hamer so said, you know what you've doing to us? Uh, that American flag is stained with our blood. And we say the institution of policing is stained in our blood. And we want a new garment because there's not enough good apple for breeze or tide or whatever you want to throw in there, oxyclean, <laughs> to, to, to get the blood out of the system, our blood out of that bloodstained system. And we want a garment, a garment of justice to overcome the long spirit of heaviness that has plagued us because of this institution. And that's what justice has to look like in this moment. My biggest takeaway was the the strategy of the prosecution and how, you know, they were kind of set up to receive congratulations for the verdict as if it wasn't a result of the work done by community organizers and those impacted by police brutality, one. And then number two, as if the prosecution itself is not an extension of the state. We say that prosecutors are cops. So what does that mean when the prosecution is pursuing a, a criminal conviction against a police officer? You know, it's not on behalf of us, the people. It's not on behalf of Black folks or on behalf of Black liberation. It's on behalf of protection of, of the Minneapolis as a city. And so I think that's like really important for folks to remember when we think about what the prosecutor's role it was when it comes to procuring justice, quote unquote. Yeah, the idea of the state putting the state on trial is really interesting. Something I was kind of talking to my parents about was like that moment when the superiors did decide to say, you know, that's not in our training that, you know, he didn't learn that here and kind of throw Derek Chauvin under the bus. Uh, that was an interesting moment of self-preservation for the state itself. Yeah, the the prosecutor in the trial made the comment that what Derek Chauvin did the day that he murdered George Floyd was not policing. 
it was murder. And Black folks, Indigenous folks, <laughs> impacted people in marginalized communities all across this empire know that that is not true. You know that if you step out into the streets, that you are more likely to run into a Derek Chauvin than you are to run into their mythical good cop. Yeah, I also I agree, Kalia. I just think that was really interesting to see them take that approach in. I really immediately understood that it was a, a defense, that the entire case was a defense for the police state. They tried to tell us and say that, oh, yeah, yeah, this is not the American police being on trial. But we all know that it was. And so, yeah, I just think it's important to remember that the prosecution definitely had the interest of the American police forces and the American police military, like, most and in, in firstly in mind. yeah. That's that's really what it is. And I have to be honest, yesterday, watching the judge read the verdict and kind of taking all that in, it was like a lot of conflicting emotions. It did feel like, you know, everyone around me is celebrating and it was hard for me to invest in that type of celebration. So I don't know, I'm just still kind of balancing some of that tension even today. I think for me, the question is really not, should folks be celebrating, right? Because I think if folks celebrate getting some kind of reassurance or validation that, you know, that this was murder, that this was unjust, then let them have that. But the question is whether or not this was accountability. And I feel like overwhelmingly the folks in my circles and everyone that's outside of the corporate media understands that what happened today was not accountability. It's just someone said it on Twitter, but it's really just a sigh of relief. It's just I think that acknowledgement and us also holding this collective care for the family and knowing that this is the thing that they said that would bring them sleep. And so like, yeah, I definitely get holding all those feelings, but I think that, you know, folks shouldn't be too hard on themselves. They should just, again, examine if they think that this is justice and, and then move from there. Yeah. I feel the relief piece. It's just hard uh, because it feels like the battle ahead is so fraught with obstacles. So yeah, I guess that's part of why, found such like solace in revisiting some of our protests from last year and just kind of reminding myself even of what us here in Richmond are fighting for and what justice or semblance of accountability would even look like here. Yeah, I I definitely feel similarly. I'm trying to, you know, as much as we ride for the individual victims of police brutality I'm I think it's trying to just root myself in a collective context and you know not fall into the trap of allowing them to continue to sensationalize individual deaths or individual convictions when it comes to the way that we perceive our fight for black liberation and just knowing that if there's anybody in jail and anybody getting murdered on any given day by the police then that means that the fight is not over I say it all the time, but I'm personally not interested in just fighting for a world where less Black people are killed by the police. I would like to see a world in which no Black people are killed or caged by police. And I think that that is a sentiment that is reflected across the diaspora right now. Yeah. And I think that it's in this spirit of like, look, looking at the violence and examining it. I think you said this earlier this week, but it's time for us to put the slave state on trial and whatever, you know, the justice that's passed out, whether that's reparations, um, abolishing the police, whatever it is, I'm just kind of have been taking that energy all week of like, what does it look like for us to put the slave state on trial? Well, yeah. And and that's what Something that's been really interesting to me is that the slave state has been on trial. You know, the verdict of Derek Chauvin's verdict was delivered the night that the Minneapolis Police Department burnt down. People gave their verdict with their rage. And so we've all known that this man was guilty. 
for so long. And I, I just think it's crazy that like in, in the face of that verdict, will we have delivered what our what our sentencing would be, which would be to defund, disarm and dismantle policing as we know it in America. They like put on their own settler colonial trial. made of their settler colonial judges and there's their settler colonial like puppets and then they tell us that okay like here's your justice wrapped up in a cage it's just weird to me you know because i find it just incredible that they can act like until you know this this year until march that there's been no trial as if like what what did all of our protesting represent if that wasn't us putting Derek chauvin on trial and and convicting him as guilty right yes and who is to pay but these departments um, that have funded so much state violence in our communities? No, I mean, this is some real stuff. It is so real. And I guess everyone's asking, what do we do next? But I, I feel like it's what has been already occurring. You know, there are things that have been happening and people who have been moving to be proactive versus reactive. And I think that all of our energy should be invested in sustaining the institutions that we've built outside of the state thus far, such as our mutual aid networks, such as our jail support systems, um, building up all those institutions that we know that we have relationships to, that we can hold the folks accountable to, and that we can get justice should we need to. But it's definitely going to have to be to to just understand that we can have 100 protests between now and 2050, and, and th- that might not. I mean, we will be in the same position if if we're not actively seeking to build up our own supports. That's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Um, the question that I think we still get so often is like, okay, defund the police and replace them with what? And it's like, we're actually building and maintaining those systems of care now. We're cultivating them now. And so that and what? Like, we're already doing that now. And oftentimes it does take these large events to spur the masses into action and to plug into some of these existing infrastructures and frameworks. But what you're telling us, Nomi, is that it does actually exist and it's here in our present reality and it's something that we can build today. And that starts with the relationships that we have with one another and our networks and systems of care that we've built that we can foster and start to create abolition even in our own lives as a practice. Yes. Like, what does it look like for folks to defund celebrity activist platforms and refund community initiatives? What does it look like to take control of our community centers, take control of our education centers, to create co-ops and reclaim control of our co-ops when it comes to providing jobs for Black people? What does it look like to take control of the housing situation? Like, these are questions that Black folks all across the country have considered and are working on and need money to fund their projects to actually engage in sovereign action. So like, I don't know, just what does it look like, you know, during this time to actually help us achieve justice? And I I think, you know, people ask that question, but truly it just looks like putting money in the hands of those who are already doing the work, who are connected to the community and who are most impacted and to stop trying to parcel out your participation in the rebellion, you know, by like giving it to BLM or giving it to, you know, just organizations and, and states and cities that you have no connection to. There are people in Richmond that are building revolution. They just need money. Right. And there are communities right here that are affected and that, you know, we we need to continue to build our our solidarity with because, yeah, like you're saying, like the fight is here. It's in everyone's community. And so the reality is we need folks investing their time, their resources right in their own communities in Virginia. 
y'all, this is not the time to tune out. I know that the verdict is in. It may be easy to continue scrolling down our timelines. And now more than ever is the time for us to be organizing, to be agitating, to be educating ourselves and our community members and our peers so that we do not have to be reactive as a community, but we can be proactive and fighting for our freedom and liberation in Richmond and beyond. So that is all for Race Capital this week. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next week and be sure to check out our SoundCloud for the full version of this episode. And we will catch you next week on Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. See y'all. The mandate for black people in this time. The mandate for black people in this time. Is to avenge the suffering of our ancestors. Is to avenge the suffering of our ancestors. To earn the respect of future generations. To earn the respect of future generations. And to be willing to be transformed in the service of the world. And to be willing to be transformed in the service of the world.